Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Women of Golf Show. I'm Ted Oderico, and joining me is LPJ professional Cindy Miller, and we are your hosts. We're broadcasting live every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on the blogtalkradio.com network, bringing you some of the best golfers, teacher professionals, and entrepreneurs helping to elevate women's golf. We're so glad you decided to join us this morning, so grab your coffee and let's get started. All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Women of Golf Show. I'm Ted Rico, and right alongside each and every week is none other than Legends Tour player and LPJ professional Cindy Miller, and we are your hosts here on the Women of Golf Show. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning. How are you? I, I'm doing quite well. We got a, a really, really good show this morning. Um, we're going to have something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to start things off here in just a moment uh, with another entry, if you will, into the, uh, the no BS zone. Uh, we've got an interesting topic this morning. And then a little bit later on, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be joined by Dr. Charles and Elaine Sanger. Uh, they're not golfers by trade. Um, they are actually uh, publishers, author advisors, and uh, creative directors, and, and all that good stuff, marketers. And uh, I think we can probably use some of what they're going to talk about here on the show uh, for those of us, particularly in the golf business, maybe get some tips that we can use to, to help better uh, align ourselves with our clients and so forth. So we'll have an interesting discussion nevertheless. And they've got quite a, an interesting backstory uh, as well. So we're looking forward to having them on the second half. But um, Cindy, I just want to, and I don't want to you know, kind of start off on a, on a sour note, if you will. But um, obviously, you know, we've been watching the news here lately and there's a lot of, um, you know, we've been dealing with this pandemic for a while and now we've got this other issue that's that's come up with uh, the loss of, uh, of um you know, this gentleman, and uh, it's just really getting chaotic. And I was just curious, how are things up in your neck of the woods? Are you seeing a lot of um, a, a lot of this chaos that's going on right now, or is it pretty much um, not in your immediate area? It's about 30 miles away in downtown Buffalo. It's, yeah. just, it's very sad. I mean, it's just, ugh. But again, you know, you know I, I don't agree that you should destroy other people's property. I think it's terrible what happened, but um, this is not the way to deal with it. Yeah, and, you know, even his brother has come out yesterday um, really abdicating for people to stop doing what they're doing. Um, you know, I'm all for peaceful protesting, and, and, and certainly this is without a doubt a, a very worthwhile cause. I mean, it's tragic what has happened, and it should have never happened. Um, but there is a justice system and justice will definitely be served. And, and, and again, I don't want to get into it too much here because it's really, you know, this is something that the authorities need to, to work through, uh, and the system. And, and I certainly applaud those that have been demonstrating peacefully. Um, but this other stuff has got to stop and I don't know what's, how it's going to work or how it's going to happen, but it needs to, a, a stop needs to happen because it's, it's disrupting people's lives. I mean, I've watched here over the last couple of days, you know, time and time again, a number of people coming on who've had businesses that have been destroyed, um, and it's just not right. So our, our heart, you know, our thoughts and prayers go out to the Floyd family um, for their tragic loss, and we we hope that justice is is done, um, you know, swiftly and, and correctly. But we also a plea to those out there that uh, are latching themselves onto this cause and uh, in a destructive way. You need to stop. It's just not acceptable in in this modern society. And on that note, well, let's, two wrongs uh, let's, don't make a right. Right, exactly. It's just not it's not justified. And I know sometimes tempers flare, but there's more behind it. And, and again, it's you know a topic for for others in, in a more uh, you know in a, in a different position. It's not really for us to play judge and jury, but uh, it's just not acceptable. And it's just uh, only adding fuel to an already difficult situation for so many people around this country who are trying to get their lives back um, with this pandemic and now having to deal with, with this. And, and um, it's just, it's just very tragic all the way around. But on that note, um, we will, we'll move on. So Cindy, you know, when I was thinking about something that we could talk about on the no BS zone, one of the areas I think that a lot of people, and I'm sure you've seen this with, with your students as I do with mine, 
is the bunker shot. Uh, and it doesn't matter which one. There's obviously different types of bunker shots. Uh, but the question really that you have, or many of them ask is, you know, why are bunker shots so difficult? And, you know, I've, I've taught for 25 plus years. I know you've done uh, many years as well as playing on the tours. So you've seen all different, uh, you know, types of, of bunker shots uh, having to be made, some very simple ones and, and some very difficult ones. And I know with many of the, the mid to high handicappers that you've worked with over the, your career as well, um, this is an area that many, many of them struggle. And really, most of it, you can, I, I think anyways, in my opinion, I think that you can sort of nail it down to, to two areas. It's one is incorrect technique and obviously um, lack of practice, which can happen in any area of the game. So I thought we would talk about it. I mean, really, that, that, that boils down to it. Because, I mean, you can take even any golfer, I don't male or female, with the worst possible swing, a few adjustments, you can correct that. But the bottom line is if they're not going to get out and work on these different things that we're teaching them, then it, it, it's just for naught. It's just not going to make any sense. It's not going to, they're not going to improve and get better. And, and for some reason, people think they can come in for the five-minute you know, minute flash lesson and suddenly you know, it's like the, the cure for the bubonic plague or something. And that's just not realistic. So um, I've jotted down some things here. And we'll just sort of lightly brush across a few of them here, and, and then uh, maybe we can share a story or two uh, of, of some of our experiences and, and, and whatnot in, in bunker play. So one of the areas that I think um, that a lot of people struggle with is for some reason, I don't know why they do this, but I've seen it, I'm sure you've seen it, is people have very stiff wrists. And what I mean by that is they almost lock their wrist, thinking that somehow – you know, and I don't know if it's a fear of, of hitting through the bunker because it's sand now. Um, some people in the regular, you know, swing outside of a bunker sometimes get stiffened up because they're worried, well, I'm going to hit the ground, it's going to hurt, you know, so on and so forth. Um, you've got to be supple in the wrist. I mean, you've got to have a certain firmness, obviously, with your grip, but you've got to be supple. Your, your wrists have to hinge in order to work properly. And that's an area, Cindy, that I'm sure you see as well. What, what are your thoughts here? It's true. <laughs> you can't lock your <laughs> You absolutely cannot lock your wrists in a bunker or or anywhere in my opinion, but definitely not in a bunker. And because again, if you lock your arms and your wrists, you're going to dig to china and the ball's going to be chunked and it's not getting out and or you're going to pull away because you're afraid you're going to dig to china and then you're going to skull it. Uh, so locked wrists cause multiple errors. So relax your wrists for sure. I totally agree. Yeah. And, 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 and again, it sounds very simple, but you'd be surprised. I mean, I've watched people, you know, what I always used, I always used to enjoy, and I don't do it as much as I used to, but earlier on in, in, in my career, what I used to do a lot is I would just go up to the range and, you know, I'd be hitting a few balls here and there, but I'd always go to the, sort of the far side of the range. I didn't want to, you know, be in the middle anywhere and, and, you know, I'm not saying I was going to intimidate anybody, but, you know, obviously I could play and, and um, people would recognize that. So I tried to go off to a distance, but I always did it in such a way that I could see what was going on in the range. And it was amazing. And even over in the practice area when you've got bunkers and, and you know, chipping areas and things like that, it was amazing to see some of the technique that people had. And it sort of brings me to the next point is chipping. Um, you know, you're not chipping the ball out of the bunker. You have to hit the ball out of the bunker, and you're hitting the sand first. You're not hitting the ball first. And I'll see people get into the most ungodly chipping stance or what have you in a bunker and think, well, if I just kind of pick it clean out of this bunker, I'll get it to my destination. And that's another thing, too, that you know I'm sure you've probably seen that many times over the years as well. And, and you know they get in there, and they kind of get their feet together, and they're getting in their chipping stance. And I'm thinking, what the heck are you doing? And then they wonder why they're – nipping it across the green or they're, you know, leaving well, it in the bunker. I don't think they know. Again, people, here's the issue with the game of golf, um, which I'm grateful for the issue because I've made a living teaching people for 35 years. But, right. but people that go play, play with people that have played longer than them. And those mm. people that have played longer than them are the committee of they, and they yep. tell the newbie, 
everything they're doing wrong and what they need to do right. And they always say, keep your head down, keep your arms straight, shift your weight, turn your shoulders, hit the ball, follow through. Those are the five old wives tales. And when you do that, you're not going to hit the ball, which I'm grateful for because then you suck and then you come to me for lessons. But that being said, you have to be careful that you don't listen to the unsolicited advice from the committee of they. Yeah, so. that's exactly right. And the worst, the worst part of it is the the folks that are in that committee more often than not have have either never taken a lesson or never really followed through with their lessons, and or, or they picked up bad habits because they've seen something. You know, nowadays with everything on the internet, they're seeing something. You know, some Joe Schmoke puts a, a video up and says, "Hey, this is what you've got to do," and, and and you know they've they've never given a golf lesson. Uh, or certainly a, a legitimate golf lesson in their life, but they figure, you know, hey, I've, I've had some success doing this, so you should try it too. And then you get everybody out there thinking, oh, okay, well, I'm going to do that, and here's something free that I can do, and I don't have to pay for it, and we'll see if it works. If it works, great. If it doesn't, well, it's no, it doesn't cost me anything. But then they wonder why they don't improve. You know, in another area too, uh, another uh, situation in bunkers, and that is um, hitting down uh, into the sand with the leading edge. Um, what people don't realize, particularly with the sand wedge, is and all clubs obviously have it, but the sand wedge, it's more pronounced, is there is what we call bounce, and it's the trailing edge, if you will, on a golf club. So if you look at um, if you look at your your irons, and you look at the leading edge, and then you kind of scooch just a little bit back, there's as it curves and comes up the back of the face, that is what creates the bounce. And if you look at a sand wedge, that edge or that rounded area, if you will, on the back of your club face actually sits lower than the leading edge. And that's what you use when you're trying to get a bunker. But I see people, like you said, trying to dig to China. They, they, for some reason, they think that they've just got to come hell or high water, just got to beat the sand out of there. And they, they dig down and they end up thumping in behind the golf ball and it doesn't go anywhere. Or if they do happen to get any sort of forward momentum, um, again, it doesn't go very far or the moving half of the sand, which now is sitting on top of the green and their ball still nowhere, anywhere near where their intended target was. So, you know, you've got to use the club properly and, uh, there are certain techniques to do that. The other thing is Cindy, uh, very quickly, and then I'll let you respond is the follow through. Um, you know, there's some golf shots, uh, in the sand where the ball might be up against the, the edge of the, uh, the bunker uh, near uh, you know near the green and sometimes you don't need to have uh, a long follow through um, depending on the, the type of shot but for most cases you have to follow through and if you just sort of abruptly stop the ball's not going to come out of the bunker talk a little bit about if you don't mind that again maybe if you want to go back to the leading edge a little bit and help them to understand how to use the club properly and then maybe talk about uh, follow through a, a little bit too well, let's make sure we clarify that we're talking about greenside bunkers and not fairway bunkers. Right. Because they're two, right. Different, two different things. Uh, so mm-hmm. a greenside bunker, uh, you want to use a sand wedge, which is a 54, 55, or 56 degree of loft. If you've mm-hmm. got a huge lip in front of you and you want to fly it real short, you might use a 58, 59, or 60 degree wedge, which is a lob wedge. Right. right. Excuse me. So a sand wedge is 54, 55, or 56. A lob wedge is 58, 59, or 60. So depending on the lie, you want to open the face, which means turn it, dial it back in your fingers like you're going to uh, turn something to the right. So you're going to turn your hands clockwise. Yep. And that makes the face open more, which allows the 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 flange, if you will, right, the bounce Mm -hmm. to hit the Mm -hmm. ball out of the bunker. So you want to open the face and not hit it with the leading edge. You want to hit it with the bounce. Now, depending on the type of sand, right, I mean, you could have wet Mm -hmm. sand, you could have real fluffy sand, and real fluffy sand, you want to use that bounce a lot. And that bounce, the, the club is going to go through the sand and the sand is going to shove the ball out, which is what you want to have happen. Now, a fairway bunker, totally different. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I had hybrids out of fairway bunkers all the time. That one, you're yep. really trying to just nip it clean. 
if you will, mm-hmm. and you do not want to hit sand out of a fairway bunker. So a uh, greenside bunker, got to hit sand. I would say an inch behind it. I would open the face. I would pick it up. So if you're set up and you got the face open, I almost try to pick the club right up to like 2 o'clock. If the ball is midnight, you're going to hinge it up immediately and then let it flop down an inch behind the ball. Yeah, well said and, and some great point. And, it, again, it's so important for people to understand. Um, for a greenside bunker, as, as Cindy just mentioned, you're not trying to hit the ball first. You're trying to hit in behind a little bit, about an inch, like you said, even an inch and a half. And one of the other problems that we often see, Cindy, is some people – misunderstand that and hit way behind i mean i've seen people hit three inches behind and they end up because of the uh, they've ripped the club properly and everything but because of the bounce they've actually skipped off and gone right over top of the ball because they've hit too far behind so positioning and how you set up is, is critical with any golf shot but particularly with the bunker shot and it's actually believe it or not if you talk to most pros on whether it be the the uh, pga or the lpga tour or legends or, or champions tour um they will tell you that actually the bunker shot is one of the easier shots to do. Um, but it, again, it, you have to understand how all of the components fit together. And as some of the, the options that I mentioned earlier with the stiff wrists and, and, you know, using a, a chipping technique and, and that sort of thing, if you're doing that, then you're not doing it correctly and you're not getting the benefit of a sand wedge. And as you pointed out, Cindy, if, if you've got a, a really high lip, you might even have to use your lob wedge. Um, it doesn't have as much bounce um, as your sand wedge does, but it will still work just as effectively. And uh, conversely, if you're hitting from a fairway bunker, um, you're not trying to take, uh, take sand. Uh, you, I mean, obviously, there's going to be some sand that will come after you've connected with the ball. But you're again, you're hitting it more like a normal shot. You're trying to get connection with the ball first uh, and pick it clean. So um, there's definitely some different techniques. But uh, again, Cindy, people make um, things so... Uh, you know, difficult um, in, in their process. And the next one, we, we, you know, we've touched on here is, is sort of uh, trying to clip the ball off the sand. Um, that's fine for a fairway bunker, not so fine for a um, greenside bunker. The other one, Cindy, that I want to talk a little bit about is is the different lies within the bunker. You know, I mentioned one earlier. Um, sometimes you get it maybe uh, closer to, to the, the front edge of, of the bunker, um, closest to the green. Uh, in some cases, it might even be buried in there. So, you know, that involves a slightly different technique. Or you might have it where the ball has landed uh, on the opposite side and it's on a bit of a downslope. So setting up is critical as well. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, um, just in, in your idea, how we can set up a little bit differently for various shots. Uh, again, if you've got to get it really, really high, I would play the ball way forward. So if you're a right-handed golfer, left foot is loft. Mm-hmm. If you've got a little uh, worse lie, I would play it a little more back in your stance, open the face, and pick it up and chop it out. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it depends on, you know, left is loft, right is roll. If you're a left-handed player, right is real high and left is low. So ball placement matters club choice matters let's pretend you've got a longer bunker shot and you've got all the green in the world to work with could you hit it out of the uh green side bunker with a gap wedge absolutely what is a gap wedge a 50 51 or 52 and so many of the people that i teach don't know the difference between these wedges so a pitching wedge typically has you know nowadays probably 46 degrees aloft uh, 45 maybe even. Uh, so pitching wedge is a normal club in your bag. If it had a number, it would be a 10. So it comes right after your 9-iron. A gap mm-hmm. wedge can also be called an approach wedge or a utility wedge, and that's a 40, 48, or, yeah, I'm sorry, 50, 51, or 52 degree aloft. A sand wedge has more loft than a gap wedge, and it has 54, 55, or 56. A lob wedge has got the most loft of most clubs in your bag. I mean, somebody did make a 62 or 64, but a lob wedge typically has 58, 59, or 60 degrees. So if I have a really long bunker shot, I will take my 50-degree gap wedge and hit a normal bunker shot out of 
a bunk a greenside bunker and hit it, you know, so it rolls and goes a little bit further. I would never hit my 58-degree lob wedge out of a bunker that has a really long roll, if you will, to get to the pin. Mm-hmm. Right, right, exactly, because even though on a greenside bunker, even though you're hitting – um, you know, with the wedge, which typically if you were hitting uh, a wedge using out of a fairway, you're going to get a lot of backspin and it's going to stop in many cases very quickly. Um, with hitting out of a bunker and because you're taking the sand, you're not getting that same control, if you will. So you have to – club selection is critical. As Cindy said, you know, you're not going to hit a, uh, a lob um, wedge, let's say, um, where you need a little bit more roll because it's going to – Again, because of the height it's going to come out, it's going to stop a little quicker. It's not going to check up like it would if you're hitting it from a tighter lie off a fairway. But, again, you're not going to get that roll. So you have to really think about it. And, you know, what I like to do, and, and I'm sure you do something very similar, is I like to create with, with students that I've worked with is I will just throw, you know, four or five balls into a bunker in, in various different positions. Some I'll even actually go over and just lightly tap in so it's a little bit buried. And then I'll ask them to... Um, you know, go and hit each of the shots and try to get it within a certain, you know, distance of the hole um, and give them a specific defined target. Then there's others I might say, I just want you to get it out and I just want you to get it on the putting surface and give yourself a chance. So you have to be um, a little bit creative. Um, but again, proper technique is, is critical out of a bunker shot. And I think once you understand that and once you learn the techniques and what's involved and where to do what, when and where, um, Bunker shots can, can be very less intimidating for the average player. Um, but it goes back to the, you know, to circle back to what we talked about at the very beginning, and that is it's not just technique and, um, and introducing the proper um, uh, technique, but um, you've got to get out and practice. And that's something that people, I mean, you know, Cindy, I'm sure you can, and I, we don't want to name names or anything, but I'm sure you've had students where you've worked with bunkers and, and um, you know, bunker techniques and things. And the next time you're out there, you want to work on maybe a few more things and they haven't practiced in, in the two weeks since they've seen you. Am I right? <laughs> would that be well, accurate? <laughs> yeah, that would be like all the time. And again, right. I, I call it the pits. The pits is putting in time. And, and again, Alan, when we're at boot camp, you know, he, he hits bunker shots and he hasn't, you know, it could be weeks or months since he hit a bunker shot and he walks in the bunker and he hits it real close to the hole. And I'm like, what the heck? But see, he, he went through the pits 30, 40 years ago, right? He put in the time. And once you have it, it's like riding a bike. You keep the feel. You just might have to get warmed up to, you know, to get the feel of this bunker and the sand and all that stuff. But if you don't put in the time, you cannot expect to get better. And and I have not put in the time. So when I'm in a bunker, I'm like, well, this could be good or this could be bad, right? Because I I don't practice. So you can't expect to be good when you haven't gone through the pits, which is putting in time. Yeah, and, and that applies obviously to every area of game. But, but this is what makes, I think, going back to the original question, why are bunker shots so difficult? It's not that they're difficult. Um, they certainly can be challenging. Um, some can be uh, a little more difficult, but the truth of the matter is, if you're not putting in the effort, and I'll be I'll, listen, I'll be the first to admit, um, hopping in the sand, I mean, is great when you're down at the beach and you're looking at the waves and stuff like that. But hopping in, working on your bunker play, is not all that exciting for for, for at least for me, and and I know from some of my students over the years. Um, but it's it's a nece- it's a necessary part of the game especially for high handicappers who quite often find themselves in those sand traps. Um, if you don't understand how to get the ball up and out and, and apply these, these different techniques, um, you're not going to be a successful golfer. And what ends up happening is what typically might end up being a par on, on a hole turns up into being you know, the, the wonderful snowman, which is great in the winter when you're rolling up the snow, but it's not putting an eight down in your, on your card on a par five. Um, or a par four even. I've seen that happen. I've even seen it on par threes because they get in a situation like a bunker and it's taking them two or three shots to get out. And then when they do get out, 
their lie or their position is so bad that they're now two or three putting in some cases. So, you know, you, you have to be smart about it, no matter what shot you're playing, but particularly with bunker shots, it can be a lot easier than what it has, than what it's set out to be or, or described. But this is why it's important to reach out to somebody like myself or Cindy um, and, and get, you know, get us to help you execute these shots with ease. And I think once you do, like everything else, Cindy, your confidence goes up, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Again, you've got to put in the time. And and you can't expect to be better if you don't practice. Yeah, so. and, and there's yeah, just one more thing I wanna add real real quick and then we'll we'll get prepared for, for our guests. <laughs> you know, one of the shots I did several years back, uh, I did a, a, a video, I've put it up actually on, on um my social media over the years. And uh, it was just something I quickly put together. It was nothing really fancy, but um, it was talking about when the ball is below your feet in a bunker. Uh, most times you're able to get in the bunker and you, you set up and do that. But sometimes you might be faced where you can't get in the ball is close to the lip. Um, and in this particular shot, it was pretty much a foot below where my, my feet were. So what I had to do in that particular case is I actually had to lower my center of gravity, which means, you know, normally you, you, you know, you get in an athletic position when you're hitting a golf shot, but in a case like this, um, and you've seen this many times with the pro, some of the times you'll see them almost looks like they're taking a knee. Um, in this case, I didn't have to do that, but I literally had to squat down lower in order to be able to get the club down low enough and reach where, I, where, I, uh, where the ball was. And it's a very, very difficult shot. And again, it, it involves a certain technique and being able to do that. I'm not getting into it all because we don't have time, but, but um, I'm going to be putting that actually in the next uh, issue of, of Golf Tips magazine that's going to be coming out here in, uh, in a little bit. But, um, you know, again, you're going to be faced with different situations and you really need to work with your teaching professional and saying, hey, or your coach and saying, hey, this is an area that I really struggle with. I lose a lot of strokes every round. What can we do to make me a better bunker player? And so that the shots are not as difficult. And we just touched on a few. We're not going to solve every you know crisis that's in the bunker, but we're just giving you an idea of some of the problems that many of you are facing out there. And if you're, you know, if you're really wanting to be a better player, you've got to work on all parts of your game. Don't just worry about hitting it straight down in the fairway. That's great. That's important. That puts you in a good position. But if you can't master, or not even master, but if you can't become more proficient in bunker play you're going to lose a heck of a lot of strokes every round because most courses nowadays, as Cindy will attest, there are bunkers all over the place, uh, fairway and and greenside particularly. And uh, you're going to find at some point, many times in a round, you're going to find yourself in a bunker. So um, food for thought. Uh, I think that was a a good, healthy discussion. And uh, I think, uh, Cindy, I think we should wrap that up and and move on. What do you think? I think you're right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We want to thank you for tuning in uh, and listening to us in the No BS Zone. We're, we're going to give it to you straight every time, and we appreciate uh, um, you tuning in this morning here to the Women of Golf. All right. We've got a very interesting couple joining us, Cindy, um, and um, they're not uh, golfers by trade, and they're not uh, golf professionals uh, either, um, but they do have a very unique uh, skill set, and I think that we can draw – um, as particularly those of us in the business world and uh, here in the golf world, we can draw, I'm sure, many, many things that we're going to talk about here and apply it to our business uh, to make it more successful and to uh, be better all around. So let me introduce them, and then Cindy will bring them on uh, to join us on air. Uh, our guests this morning are Dr. Charles and Elaine Sanger. Uh, they're author, advisors, authors, and publishers. Uh, they serve entrepreneurs, professionals, leaders, and people uh, with a story they want to share with the world. And through their own message, uh, your message programs, they guide people from aspiring to accomplished authors. Um, some interesting facts. Uh, they lived on a 38-foot sailboat and traveled from Chicago to South America for over seven years. Uh, they've started up uh, together as a husband and wife uh, partners, three companies, two for profit and one nonprofit. Uh, Charles has a doctorate in uh, intellectual, uh, intercultural, excuse me, uh, studies and wrote a number one bestseller, Gilligan Meets Google, which I, I want to hear a little bit about that, uh, which deals with the transition from an industrial uh, to a digital society. 
And Elaine was an off-Broadway costume designer early in her career and has excelled in sales and marketing, repeatedly closing seven-figure agreements with Fortune 100 companies. So, Cindy, let's uh, welcome our very special guests this morning, Dr. Charles and Elaine Sanger. Good morning. Hi, Cindy. How are you? We're thank doing you so much great. for inviting us on. Well, thank you so We're glad much to be for here. being here. So I got to ask about the costume stuff. Elaine, will you, because um, I love to sew, and I started oh. a, a shirt business, uh, not because I wanted to start a shirt business, because I wanted to buy a $2,000 sewing machine and felt guilty. So I started a shirt business to pay for the machine, and I ended up selling shirts to Augusta National Golf Club. So tell me about the costume designing. What did you do? Well, uh, my undergrad degree was in design, and after college I moved to New York City. I started uh, doing fabric design and fashion design, and eventually I branched out into costume design. Where You know what? There's a huge echo. Can I just? Yeah. I don't know why it's a terrible echo. I'm moving um, downstairs. I'm moving away from her. We were in the same room together, so I'm moving away. That probably has solved it. Yeah, okay. I think that's what it is. Is it better? Probably better. Yeah, is that's better? perfect. Okay. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, go I ahead. Sorry. Or... No, no, that's fine. Cindy, just keep going. All right. Yeah. So while I was in New York, I got very involved in costume design. I did off-Broadway shows. I did... Uh, special events at Lincoln Center. I was a resident costume designer for an opera company and also uh, AMDA, which was a uh, theatrical school. Uh, so I, I had that part of my career. Uh, I lived in New York City for 17 years, and eventually I transitioned all that into IT uh, technology. Wow. <laughs> That's different. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, it's very hard. It's very hard to uh, make a living uh, in some of the more glamour industries, and uh, so it came down to how am I going to make a living and uh, have a, a better lifestyle. Got it. Got it. So tell us, why did you live on a boat for seven years? Well, we kind of got tired of the corporate life. We we didn't mind the work we were doing. Uh, I was a project manager putting in um, high-end computer um, um, computer systems. Some of them were global. And I loved the challenge of the project management. But the thing was, I was finding before we get the project done, they're looking at the next thing. So longevity on these projects wasn't too great. And that was kind of frustrating. And I think Elaine experienced the same thing in the sales. She was in the sales end. And um, uh, we started doing some work with our church, uh, helping people get their budgets straightened out. And we had some partners down in South America, down in the Dominican Republic and Costa Rica, and they heard that what we were doing, and they wanted us to come down for a couple weeks and teach them. And we started doing that. We were giving up our vacations doing that for several years, and they wanted more and more and more. So it came to the point um, we were looking at, we were sailors at that point. We decided to combine our love for sailing and go to, down to the islands and do some sailing and do some teaching. And we could be down there more and we would combine the two together. And so that's, that's kind of how that happened. Wow. It wasn't, it wasn't something we did. Now, some people think you just quit your job and go do it. Uh, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, you know, we used our corporate jobs to build up our kitty so we could do it. And um, while we were doing our corporate jobs, we were planning for a 501c3, which we started when we did that. And that got us funds for teaching down there. We weren't using those for our living, but for our teaching costs and things like that once we got down into the Caribbean. And so we spent our time working before we left, uh, you know, building our kitty to do that and doing the plans, putting the companies together uh, to be able to do that thing. And uh, we bought an older boat, so we had to rebuild a lot of the boat. Wow, that's uh, that's an incredible story. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting, and, and, and I like the fact that you pointed out the fact that you didn't just quit your jobs and, well, we're going to go on sailing for, for the next seven years. Um, you know, there was sort of a, a method, if you will, to your madness. 
and um, you know you decided to really get the best of both worlds. And I think it's important for creativity to be able to do something that you really enjoy. You obviously enjoy teaching and, and helping others to get the best out of their uh, business and or lives. Um, but you did it really in a fun way um, by you know exploring it in that with with the boat. I want to ask you um, just to help um, our listeners because we have not only just sort of our regular fans that listen, but we also have uh, other uh, golf professionals that tune into our show as well. So maybe you can offer some tips that can help them uh, better organize themselves. One area we see many times, Cindy has done it, um, as well as many others have have written books. You know, golf instructional books, golf, you know, whatever um, related books. Um, Talk about some of the benefits of, of doing it, that and what you would recommend if somebody was writing a book, um, again, regardless of what topic, but we're just talking about golf here, how would you advise them to sort of put things together and organize in such a way that the, the readers are going to find it interesting? What, what tips would you give them? Uh, and uh, Charles and Elaine, I'll let you decide how you wanna, who wants to answer first or both or what have you. What would I'll you take advise the first them? Part about the benef- sure. yeah, I'll take the first part about the benefits of a book. Um, actually, there are three main areas that we look at. First is on a personal level, getting that clarity and that fullness and understanding, basically your thesis of how you approach the topic, what, you, what stories you have about that topic, if it's a nonfiction, um, mm-hmm. and what are the key things that you want to communicate to your audience. So it's that personal clarity that follows you in whatever content, whether you're speaking or doing blog posts or, doing, or teaching. It helps you get that together. The second is the credibility you get uh, with potential clients or with people who will, um, you, know, uh, you give lessons to or that would pay you. <clears throat> Uh, having a book definitely uh, lets people know that you've taken the time to think about this and you have uh, a way that you think about it. So that gives you instant credibility with people. And the third way is market authority. So if you're going, if you want to do some speaking and you want to be more of a thought leader uh, in the marketplace, having a book puts you ahead of everyone else in line. Uh, if there are three people that are going to be considered as speakers or uh, to get an award or something like that, probably the person with the book will be, they will be at the front of the line versus not. So mm-hmm. that gives you that authority. So those three things, it's personal, it's at the client level, and it's in the marketplace level. Great stuff. Um, Charles, what would you like to add to that? Um, I think she's right. If you write a book about golfing, it's going to make you a better golfer. Um, we, we had a, we had a manual about a 300 page manual that we did on sailing in the sailboat and stuff like that. We, I rebuilt the boat from, it was about 10 years old. So a lot of electronics, a lot of rigging, a lot of stuff like, and I kept records of all of that, but doing that and having to write it down made me a better sailor. It made mm-hmm. me understand the boat. And the same would go with golf. If you have some golfers out there that want to write about golf, it's going to make them a better golfer because Besides just getting at it and doing it, they're going to have to think through the processes right. they're going through. <laughs> and as you do that, you start noticing holes in your thinking. And right. I think that's the big advantage of writing over speaking and even, even upfront teaching, which I've done a lot of, is when I have to write it, I start seeing the holes that I miss mm-hmm. when I'm just verbally talking it. And so that makes me so, better when I start filling those in. Right. Most of our people listeners... from, be, from being, they, they think they want to write, they're aspiring, they think about it. Maybe they're taking some notes. We had one guy that uh, when we met him, he had hundreds of little notes on pieces of envelopes. And, but he wanted to come to us. He came to us to make him into an author, and we got him published. And now he's using the book the way he wants to, so he's an accomplished author. And that's the other mm. thing. Just like golfing, if you're going to learn to golf, when we're learning to golf, we've taken lessons several times. We go to mm. a pro Many that times. can teach us how to do it. Um, <laughs> when I learned to sail, I was with some very experienced sailors. When we brought Elaine in, we went to uh, a, a school where she could learn to sail. And when you write a book, that's a very complex industry. 
And the mm-hmm. best way to do it is find a professional that can help guide you through. And don't wait till you've written everything. If you're going to write a book, do the commitment, make the commitment at the beginning, and find a professional that can help you through the entire process. So let me ask you a question. Um, Most of our listeners, well, a a majority of our listeners are people in the golf industry, so they would already be pretty good at golf, and or they could be students that want to learn how to play better golf. So if you were talking to a room full of teachers that teach golf, what would you tell them? Like, would you do an ebook? Would you do a small book? What would be the purpose of the book if you weren't trying to go do speaking engagements and you only taught golf? If I was a teacher, my purpose for my book would be to um, supplement what I'm teaching when my students aren't with me. Mm-hmm. So I would I would write that book for my students that they could take and it would um, reinforce what I'm trying to teach them when I'm with them on the course. Would you create an ebook? Um, probably not. So, I would probably go with a, yeah. a regular book. And the reason I say that is, especially if you're going to have illustrations, mm-hmm. that gets tough in the ebook environment where if you've got a physical book, uh, those illustrations and, and diagrams and things are much easier to deal with. When you get in an ebook, you know, they can look at it on an iPhone or an iPad or on their computer screen, and that just gets to be a problem dealing with a lot of, uh, of illustrations and diagrams and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I've got some, of, some diagrams in my Gilligan Meets Google book, and they're okay on a computer screen or an iPad, but when you get on the iPhone, they're just a jumbled right. mess. So even though the, the, the software, you know, they're, they're in Kindle, so Kendall's designed to do that, but it Kendall's Kendall and the ebooks can't handle a lot of shrinking those diagrams down the way we'd like to. Got it, Ted. Yeah, and and just to, to add to that, I, I agree. I think there's um, uh, there's definitely a place and time for ebooks, but I would agree, especially when you're dealing with um, a lot of illustrations and things like that. Sometimes. Um, you know, and it depends on the quality of the phone that the person has. If they don't have a good quality phone, sometimes it can uh, mess with things as well. So there's a lot of variables, and I, I would agree with that. I want to just touch on one and more I, thing. Just, can I say one? Sorry, go ahead. Yes, yes, please go ahead. I love to have a physical book. So yes, you know, I have a we have quite a few golf books. So I love just to sit down, look at the pictures, scroll, you know, look through it uh, with my cup of coffee. I'm not always on a on a phone. I like that physical, tangible book. Yeah, I agree. Uh, a lot of people are like that. You know, I think technology is nice. Kindle, as you said, uh, Charles, I think can be um, a lot of fun for people that like to to read in that format. But yeah, there's a lot of things that that can mess with, it, especially when you start um, requiring a, a visual component to it. Um, I, I just want to touch one more thing on on books, sort of on the opposite side of things. Um, you know, I've I've received quite a few different books that uh, some of my fellow professionals have written. Um, Some of them are are very, very well put together and very well organized. And I know it goes back to what your original uh, comments were that you need to work with a professional to help guide you through the process. But what advice would you give um, to, again, we'll stick with golf professionals when putting this book together, some of the don'ts to do, and I'll give you an example. Um, Some of the books that I've looked through have gotten so technical uh, in their writing, that it, it literally does two things. One confuses the golfer, and the other, I mean, it, it even puts me to snooze. Um, it's it just, and it's not that the efforts aren't put in and that the, the information they're putting in, but sometimes they get um, too technical and it's overwhelming. What advice would you give to somebody that wants to write a book, besides obviously working with a professional, um, about sort of staying away from um, in order to make it successful and make it enjoyable read, even for those that maybe don't golf? Uh, I think there's three things you can do there. First, uh, you want a good editor. 
okay? Mm-hmm. Second, uh, would help if that editor's also a golfer in that case mm-hmm. because they would understand whether you're getting too, too technical, whether you're not technical enough, whether you're saying it right, that a regular editor may not catch. And mm-hmm. the third thing you can do is what we call crowdsourcing. Uh, as you're writing it, try some of those chapters out with some of your students ahead of time before you publish. See what they think right. about it. Have them make comments on this was hard to understand. I didn't follow you here. Or even maybe another uh, another instructor that they work with on a close basis. Um, have them look at it. So that's called crowdsourcing. Uh, where you just kind of share it uh, a chapter at a time or so, and they're not really looking for spelling and grammar mistakes. They're looking for content and flow, and does it make sense? And from the marketing and sales point of view, uh, a lot of people when they're writing, especially if they're more technical, they're thinking of things from their point of view instead of the reader's or their audience's point of view. And sometimes people go a little overboard on the technical aspect of it because either they're trying to show that they know all of this or um, they just don't understand that their readers are probably think and look at things very differently than they do. So part of it is that process of getting into your audience or your reader's head and how they will receive the information versus what you want to put out. Yeah, and the reason and, the and reason why said, I said you can you can divide ahead, that please. audience up. If I were doing a book on sailing, I would divide it up. Are, is my audience beginners? Are they cruisers or are they racers? Mm-hmm. Because my level of detail is going to change for each one of those groups. So you know the golf market. You've got beginners that are learner like us that need pretty uh, simple kind of stuff. Okay. Right. Too complex. You're going to overwhelm us. Uh, right. Uh, but then you've got some that ha- have gone past that, and they want more detail. So you have to know who your audience is. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think you have to have a little bit of something for everybody. And the reason why I ask that is I've I've worked with people in the golf business who have developed products and so forth, and they're very very technical people. And I've looked at their um, their their sales and marketing campaigns, if you will. And they said to me, you know, what do you think of this? I've, we've got this great product. And I said, it's a fantastic product. But I said, when I read your information on it, it is so technically driven that the average person, is just, it's going to be way over their head. They just want to know what is it going to do? How is it going to help me out in the golf course? They don't care about, you know, the, the gear effect and this effect. And they don't care about that. Um, and, and that's why I asked you that question. Um, I, I mentioned at the top of the show um, when I first introduced you, uh, Charles, that I was going to ask you about your number one bestseller, Gilligan Meets Google. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, Gilligan Meets Google was actually what got us into this business. I had finished my doctorate, and uh, due to changes, I had to change my dissertation halfway through. And I wrote about um, we had been living in the third world on the boat and in the Dominican Republic. And we came back to the United States. While we were gone, social media and the iPhone were introduced into the country, okay? Mm. So we came back to a whole new world. Even though we were technical before we left and we worked in IT before we left, when we came back, it was a whole different world. So I wrote a dissertation on that transition that especially boomers were finding going through the industrial, going into the digital age. And I realized that that dissertation was going to sit on a shelf in a library and gather dust. So I made it into a popular book. When I did that, Elaine's marketing experience took me to bestseller in three categories on Amazon. So I started getting people asking me if they would help, if if I would help them write a book. And when we experienced that kind of thing in Elaine and my life, we've noticed when people start asking us to do something, that's a good indication, especially if we would like to do it that that may be an opportunity for us to pursue. And that's what we did. Hmm. Very interesting. But that transition, when we came back, we saw, a big, we saw a big change because when we left, you know, if you went to the airport, you may be carrying, you know, the cell phone we had were the old flip phones. They laughed at us right. when we brought them back and wanted a battery for them. Um, and... <laughs> 
Um, uh, you know, texting, you had a special machine for texting when we left. That wasn't on your phone. The, the phones didn't have computers in them. Thinking back to that technology before we left and then what it was when we came back, it was totally different. And that's what I talked about. And not so much about social media, but right, the changes it had in our culture, in our environment, in our relation to each other, in society, and that kind of thing. That's the changes I was looking at and how that shifted us. Right. Well and right said. now, I, could, uh, I, I, I look at what's going on today. I could, I could upgrade the book because uh, since the time I wrote and I was talking about things that could be and might happen, well, they've happened now, and I could take it to the next level at this point. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. Let me ask you one more quick question, and Cindy, I'll, I'll bounce it back to you. You know, um, when you talk about, you know, business and, and entrepreneurship and, and that sort of thing, we're, we're, we're going through a difficult time right now, obviously, with the pandemic, and a lot of people are, are struggling in that. Um, and, but history has shown we've, we've gone through many highs and many lows in, in our careers. Um, when you're faced with, obviously, in this particular case, things that are beyond your control, you have to take a step back and sort of reassess and say, how can I make adjustments? Can I make changes or do I need to make changes in order to keep going and moving forward? If you were advising some business folks right now, given the difficult times that we're going through, how would you advise them? What would you say to them specifically to help make sure they're staying on the right path and not panicking and making, you know, um, rash decisions that could alter their, um, you know, their careers or their businesses long-term. You want to start with that one, Elaine? Okay. Um, We've gone through a lot of these highs and lows. We've been through um, major economic downturns, uh, laying off, you know, 10 people in the company, um, Mm -hmm. having to close physical uh, facilities. Uh, Now we, we work virtually. So that's that's better through this this time. But we've gone through those, um, and I think the key thing there is is our focus. And Charles, you you might want to pick it up from there. So we've been through this. This is not a new game to us. It's happened multiple no. times for us. Right, right. Go ahead, Charles. And and each time we do that, that helps us reassess. Um, the first two businesses, the first business and the nonprofit we had, were tied to physical locations. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were tied to brick and mortar locations. And as we were, as that uh, 501c3, we were realizing that was having to close. And it, it was because of a downturn in the economy. We were losing our funding. Costs were going up where we were. And it was just getting so that we couldn't afford to keep it going anymore. We started evaluating how, are we, what are we going to do next? Because we, we went back to corporate, but we knew that's not where we wanted to stay. So we started structuring our business more to survive those kind of things now um and that's how we've structured what we're doing now so we're learning from that and we may have to change some things you know it cost us the in the late 90s it cost us our key business because of the downturn economy we were in a tertiary Mm -hmm. market we lost three of our big clients that represented over 75 percent of our business because Mm -hmm. they either moved closed their doors or whatever and um, so that moved us back into corporate. We regrouped. We started, started our 501c3. And then when we got going in that and we realized the uh, downturn in the economy, when was that, Elaine, in the uh, uh, mid-2000s or whatever, was yeah. causing uh, our, our donors to not be able to give at the levels they were. And it was also being in a a third world environment, it was driving up our costs because the cost of the valuation of the peso was changing. So, So, uh, and we were tied again to a physical location with employees. So we were trying to evaluate where we were there. How could we change that right then to get rid of the physical location, to change the, the nature of our employees and do it more virtually? That wasn't working out. And I was going through starting my thesis at that point, and my thesis advisor, as I was talking to him about the problems, he says, that's your new thesis. Hmm. And that's what so got, we, in, we, got me into looking into at this, that yeah. industrial age, brick-and-mortar stuff, into the virtual, the digital age, and looking at how to do stuff virtually. 
Right. Elaine, sorry, go ahead. Time this happened to us, we were sort of shocked. Uh, it happens now three times. Um, the, the economy, we didn't think it would happen. And I think you really need to look at your life in seasons over a long span of your entire life, not just short term and what's happening now. So there are going mm-hmm. to be seasons and the economy is going to go up and down and things are going to be good and things are going to be bad. And if you have that perspective to see past that bad part and to lean in even more into what you really believe you should be working on and doing, you'll, you'll sail through it, but you will, you'll get through it. It's like going through yeah, a storm, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. And we've been through exactly. a lot of storms having our a, boat. Having a mission or having a goal, um, and if you're working as a couple, that's got to be a shared mission or goal, that both of you individually are going there and as a couple you're going there. That's going to help you move forward because you're going to look at that when the circumstances start falling apart around you and go, okay, mm-hmm. how can I change the circumstances? What can I do different to still achieve that goal? Because my goal is value, valid. You know, we want to help people learn. We want to teach them from experiences we've had. We want to help adults move forward with what they want to do and that kind of thing. So that goal is never going to change. So that's our life goal. Now, how we accomplish that might. And, uh, you know, we could get into a mess. We don't know the mess that our world's going to be in after all this stuff settles down. But it right. may get to where we have to change a little bit in what we're doing and how we're doing that. But our goal remains the same. Right. And you have, yeah, you have to be able to adapt and change um, really sometimes on the fly because things, uh, uh, environments can change so quickly. Um, Cindy, um, do you have another question or, or comment? No, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. So if people are interested, because our time is about over, how do they find you? Um, they can go to our website. It's yourmessagecentral.com. That's yourmessagecentral.com. We have a lot of uh, things there that can get you started, including a self-assessment about where you are on your writing journey um, and some other things. Uh, You can also find us at our own websites. Uh, One is charlesanger.com, and the other is elainesanger.com. They'll all lead you to the same uh, place eventually, and we're, we're on Facebook as well. Awesome. Very good. Well, well, um, we we want to thank both of you for for joining us. And we wish we had a little bit more time, but um, thank you for for reaching out to our audience, and and hopefully they'll they'll pull away um, a few nuggets from our discussion this morning. But um, thank you very much for reaching out and and coming on the program this morning. And uh, um, we'll uh, we'll have you back again and pick up the conversation from here. But uh, thank you for joining us this morning on the Women of Golf. We appreciate it very much to both of you. Well, thank, thank you, Jay. We enjoyed and the opportunity. You're thank very, you. very thank welcome. You. All right. <laughs> All right. Bye bye. All right. That was Dr. Charles and Elaine Sanger. Um, very interesting couple, you know, Cindy, um, just as we've got a moment here, too, before we need to go. But um, obviously, they're not, uh, as I mentioned earlier, not in the golf business, but um, they certainly have some um, food for thought, if you will, that I think anybody, regardless of what industry they're in, can can pull away from that. So, um, definitely you want to check them out. Uh, go to uh, charlesanger.com or elainesanger.com and uh, you can get more information there. But um, on that note, we have to say goodbye. We want to thank you for joining us this morning on the Women of Golf. We always appreciate you tuning in and we would love to hear from you. So feel free to reach out, uh, Cindy at cindymillergolf.com or you can reach out to me at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you any thoughts or comments you have about the shows or any suggestions on future shows, uh, please reach out. Uh, Again, thank you very much for joining us on the Women of Golf this morning. God bless everybody. Stay safe uh, and just be careful when you're out there. Uh, Thanks, Cindy. Thanks, Ted. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening this morning to the Women of Golf show. Tune in live each week by visiting blogtalkradio.com forward slash women of golf or on any of these social media platforms iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course Spotify. If you can't join us live, check out our on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts. To get updates for future shows and upcoming guests, you can follow us on Facebook at Women of Golf. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO and Cindy at Cindy Miller Golf. 
Please remember to join us next week on the Women of Golf Show. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.